Father God, we come to you as weary, thirsty travellers, humbly yet expectantly opening our hands to receive the living water from you, the cup of blessing and refreshing. We acknowledge you are infinite and holy. Your ways are so much higher than ours. Unless you reveal yourself, it is beyond our comprehension. Please grant us spiritual sight to perceive your message to us today and grant us the filling of your Holy Spirit that he would guide us into all truth. Bless, bless Brother Brian and speak to us through him today as he opens your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd now like to invite Meredith to bring us the Bible reading. Thank you. It's actually chapter 2, Colossians 2, verses 6 to 15. <clears throat> so then, just as you received Christ Jesus our Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all us, he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again, and uh, thank you, Meredith, for reading that for us. Um, I always think when we meet together like this, what a privilege it is for us to be able to do that under God's word in the way that we are able to, because right across the world in many countries, there are people who 
have to meet in secret, who don't have the freedom of meeting together like this in open uh, and uh, listening to God's word like this. So it's a real privilege to be together and to listen to God's word this morning. Let's, let's come to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. Uh, it's a treasure trove of riches. Help us, Lord, today as we try to plumb the, a little bit of the depths of uh, what we've read uh, this morning. Uh, give me liberty and uh, help me to speak clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure most of us have heard of Aesop's, fail, Aesop's fables and the classic children's story, uh, The Tortoise and the Hare. The hare ridicules the tortoise for being so slow and uh, he does this over and over again and eventually the tortoise, fed up with the hare's arrogance, challenges him to a race. Now you know the story, of course the hare is much faster and he's so confident that midway through the race he decides to take a nap and of course he oversleeps. The tortoise just keeps going, plodding on and wins the race. Listen to part of the story. The sun moved across the sky and still the hare slept. Every now and then a paw trembled as he chased butterflies in his dream. On plodded the steady tortoise, looking neither to the left nor the right, but straight ahead with one goal in mind as the sun began to sink in the sky. It's a classic children's story, isn't it? about perseverance over presumption. Keep going rather than it'll be right. Not looking to the left or the right, but straight ahead focused on the goal. And that is the Christian life, isn't it? That's what Paul is telling us here in these verses. Just as you started, he says, just as you received Christ, continue in him. Push on, keep going. And he's been actually saying this from the beginning of his letter. In chapter 1, verse 2, he calls the Colossians faithful brothers and sisters. They stick at it. They faithfully press on. And in chapter 1, verse 11, he prays for them to have great endurance, to keep pushing on. And in chapter 1, verse 23, he encourages them to continue in the faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope of the gospel. And now here in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Now these verses, verses 6 and 7, are actually the hinge of the whole letter to the Colossians. And they summarise what Paul has said so far, and they sort of outline what he's going to say from here on to the end. See, Paul is now moving from the indicatives of the gospel the wonderful things that God has done for us in Christ, to the imperatives of the gospel. How are we to live in the light of that? He's moving from theology to practice. Here's the truth of the gospel, he says. Now, what does that mean for our Christian lives? And so the question is, how do we continue to live our lives in Christ? How do we press on and keep on going? How do we grow as Christians? We want to grow, don't we? We want to be more like Christ, don't we? That's Paul's goal, and we heard about that last week. Everyone mature in Christ. That's our goal for ourselves and for each other, isn't it? We want to know Jesus more, don't we? 
We want to live for him more. We want more of his power in our lives, especially to be bold in our witness for him. And we want more love and joy and peace and patience. We want to grow in godliness and maturity. And Paul says, fantastic. You want to grow? That's really good. But be careful how you grow. Because there's always someone who will come along and say, here's what you need to do. Here's the one, two, three of Christian growth. And see, Paul writes this letter to the Colossians because he's concerned. He wants to encourage them and, and rejoice with them, but he's also concerned about something that's happening in the church. You can already see his concern back in chapter 2, verse 1, where he talks about his personal struggle for the Colossians to stay right in their thinking about Christ. And his concern is there in the warning in chapter 2, verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. See, there were leaders in Colossae, clever people with fine-sounding arguments who had attractive ideas on how to grow and ideas that were causing the Colossians to actually drift away from Christ. And so here in verse 8, Paul warns the Colossians more directly. Look at these words. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depend on human tradition, uh, which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Notice how Paul describes these dangers. They're very attractive, and they're powerful to take us captive. They offer much, but leave us empty and hollow. They're based on man-made traditions and regulations. And they diminish the glory of Christ by focusing us on the principles and defining spirit of this world. And Paul says, watch out for this sort of teaching. Think about it. Test it. Does it have substance? Is it really transforming my life? Is it based on the truth of God's word? Does it make me see and trust and love and follow the Lord Jesus more and more? And next week, Paul Harrington will be here with us next week, and uh, in verses 15 to 23, we'll spell out in more detail the sorts of false teaching that can derail our life in Christ. But here in verses 6 to 15, Paul wants to underscore what we have in Christ and how we grow as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So firstly, Paul reminds us to hold fast to Christ, to stay grounded in Christ. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Notice who you've received. You've received Christ Jesus as Lord. You've received Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one spoken about in the Old Testament, the one promised, first promised to come in Genesis 3. Remember, the seed of the woman who would come to crush the serpent's head, the one who would come to, and set things right. You've received Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, and you've received Jesus, 
the historical Jesus, not some concept or idea, but a real person who lived and died and rose from the dead, who came into the world to save his people, to save us from our sin. And you've received this Christ Jesus as Lord. He's your master, your king, the ruler of this universe, and therefore the ruler of your heart and your life. Given this is who you and I have received, when we believe the gospel, Paul says we should do four things. First, continue to live in him. He's our Messiah, he's our Saviour, he's our Lord. Don't be diverted from him, don't be distracted from him. Press into the truth of who he is and who you are in him. And secondly, he says, be rooted and built up in him. Don't be like a tumbleweed. I think there's a picture up on the screen. A tumbleweed is a very interesting plant. It starts its life rooted in the soil. It has a single root. But as it gets older, the root dries and withers until it breaks off. And off it goes wherever the wind blows. And Paul says, don't be blown around. Don't, uh, don't be blown around. Get your roots down. If you want to be a stable Christian, a growing Christian, a Christian that is bearing fruit and maturing, you've got to get your roots down, don't you, into what you have, into Christ, the same Christ that you received. Tumbleweed Christians don't grow, do they? They get blown around by new ideas or something that excites them. Oh, you've got Jesus? You need this as well. And you get blown this way and it doesn't work and then you look for something else and you get blown that way. No, no, we need to be rooted in Christ. That's the soil we must push our roots deep into. And when we're rooted in him, we get built up. As someone once said, a great oak is only a little nut that's stuck to its ground. How do I, as a little Christian acorn, grow into a mature Christian oak by sticking to the ground I'm in, being rooted and built up and growing in him. It's a picture of us. Uh, thirdly, learn more of Christ. Strengthen in the faith as you've been taught. Now that's a picture of the schoolroom, isn't it? As, at school we grow as we learn and learn and learn. And as Christians we want to learn Christ. Not just more about him, but more of him and how he transforms every area of our lives. See, a Christian doesn't just say, I know what I've, what I've believed. What does a Christian say? The Christian says, I know whom I believed. William Barclay, Barclay uh, the commentator, illustrates it this way. He, he asks several people the question, do you believe in love? And first he asked a 10-year-old boy, do you believe in love? And the boy said, yes, I believe in love because I see it in my sister. It means I can't go into the TV room because she's always in there with her boyfriend. I believe in love. Then he asked the psychologist, do you believe in love? Oh, yes, I believe in love, said the psychologist. It's a condition provoked by certain stimuli that produces certain identifiable actions. Yes, I believe in love, and I can list those actions for you. And finally, he asks a young man, 
who was with his lady holding hands, walking along the seashore in the moonlight. Do you believe in love? And he says, of course I believe in love. I'm in love. See the difference? One believes in love from the outside. He can see it in someone else, but he's never experienced it. The other believes in love because he can analyse it. And the third one is in it. He's in love. And that's the Christian faith. We know whom we believe. And as we get to know him better, our love grows and our faith grows. That's how we're strengthened in the faith we were taught. And I realise more and more that I'm not right with God because I'm a goody and have achieved a certain standard. No, it's Christ. He makes me right with God. And I trust him and I trust in his saving work. And that changes my life. And I love him and I want to live for him more and more. It's a dynamic of faith. Do you see? It's more than just information about Christ, isn't it? It's alive, it's real. To know Christ more strengthens my faith. And fourthly, says Paul, overflow with thankfulness. And that's a picture of a river bursting its banks like the mighty Murray did a year or so ago. As we grow in Christ and come to know more of him and his amazing salvation, we're filled with a deep thankfulness. What a wonderful saviour he is. He died for me. He paid for all my sins. He clothes me with his righteousness. And so now I stand before God as holy and blameless, spotless, as Paul said in a few verses back. Growing Christians overflow with thankfulness because of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Stay grounded in him. That's the first thing. Stay grounded in him. The second thing that Paul says we need to grow is to find fullness in Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10. And this is really staggering. Try to soak in these words a little bit. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And Paul reminds us here, of the fullness we discover in Christ. How could we look, possibly look anywhere else in the entire universe to find fullness? All the fullness of God lives in Christ. Remember back over the last few weeks, Paul's already told us who Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the one who created all things. He's the one who reconciles all things. He's the one who rules everything in heaven and earth. He's the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why would we look anywhere else for fullness than in Jesus Christ? He's God in bodily form. Now remember the parable that Jesus himself taught in Matthew 13 about the man who found the treasure in the field? He sold everything he had to buy that field and have that treasure because he knew that if he had that treasure, he had everything he could possibly need. And remember what Paul says himself to the Philippian Christians. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a religious teacher. 
I observed all the rules and uh, ceremonies and the requirements of the Jewish law. I consider myself, I considered myself, said Paul, a spiritual giant. I know God. But then the Apostle Paul met Jesus, didn't he, on the road to Damascus. And reflecting on that, he says to these Philippian Christians, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider all this religious stuff that I was into garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's what Paul is saying here to the Colossians. All the riches are in Christ. He's the fullness of God. Don't settle for second best. See, if I find something less than Jesus satisfying, it's because I've never really discovered or I've lost sight of the fullness there is in Jesus. And that's our struggle, isn't it, friends? Jesus doesn't seem very great to us. He's not much to us. We're we're so familiar. He's too familiar. And we don't really see him as he is. We don't really see him as the awesome creator of this universe and the reconciler of all things and the Lord with all authority and all power. We need to pray, each one of us, regularly. Lord, show me more of your majesty and your glory and supremacy and the wonder of your love and the tenderness of your kindness and the authority and goodness of your word. For all the fullness of deity lives in you. Don't let me settle for second best, Lord. Show me Christ. But there's something even more breathtaking here. It's the fullness we receive from Christ. Paul says, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. And this is, this is so wonderful. This is so spectacular, so marvellous. You know, however weak and poor and unworthy or helpless you are, you've been given fullness in Christ. He's the storeroom of God, and you've been given the storeroom of God. And this is such a wonderful thing. This is incredible intimacy. It's all in Christ. It's not just just that I believe in Christ, I'm in Christ. I'm one with Christ. He's the head, I'm part of the body. He's the vine, I'm one of the branches. He's the big brother, I'm in the family. He's the bride, I'm the groom. Uh, He's the groom, I'm the bride. So don't let anyone tell you you're missing something in your Christian life and that you need something more to grow. That's what these false teachers were saying to the Colossian Christians. And it's still the sort of thinking we hear today quite often. Having Jesus okay, but it's just a start to really grow. You need to do this or that. Follow these rules, participate in these ceremonies, practice these disciplines and so on. No, no. Christ is full. And out of his fullness, and as we trust him, he pours the riches of his grace and presence and love into our lives. It's like putting an empty jar into the ocean. There's no way I can fit the whole ocean into my empty jar, but my jar is instantly filled with the ocean, isn't it, as I put it in? Christ is infinite. 
and he holds all the fullness of God. And whenever we finite creatures dip our tiny, the tiny, tiny vessel of our lives into him, we're instantly filled with his fullness and it doesn't, never drains him. And as we're filled with his fullness, we get stretched and we grow and we come to know more of him and our roots go deeper into him. That's the Christian life. That's the life of faith. Grounded in him, fullness in him. That's how we grow. And the third thing we need to grow is to realise what we have in Christ. See, how can we ordinary human beings have the fullness of Christ in us? Well, it's because we're not ordinary human beings. Through faith in the saving work of God, we are actually united with Christ and have fellowship with him. So much so, says Paul, that we died with him and are buried with him and were raised with him. Have a look at the following verses, 11 and 12. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed with human hands, your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, what does all that mean? Let me try to explain it as simply as I can. Circumcision for the Jew was just the cutting of a bit of skin, and it set them apart for, as God's people. But now, says Paul... Christ has set you apart by cutting your sin out. Your self ruled by the flesh has been severed so that as you came to faith in Christ, you were born again by the Spirit of God and you died to sin just as Christ died for sin. And your baptism is an outward sign of this. Our old selves are buried with Christ just as Christ was buried in the tomb and we were raised to new life, just as Christ was raised from the dead. See how intimately we're united with him? When you came to faith in Christ, you also came to share in what he achieved his death and, in his death and resurrection. And all this happened by faith, through the powerful working of God. You died to sin, that is the power and reign of sin, not the presence of sin, because we know we're still in the presence of sin, but it no longer rules us. And you've been set free to live a new life, loving, serving, and enjoying Christ. What an incredibly privileged people we are to enjoy such close unity and fellowship with Christ, our Lord. And not only are we united with Christ in his death and resurrection, for us, we also have forgiveness in Christ. Look at verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your hearts, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave your sins, having cancelled them, cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. What's that talking about? Well, it's talking about God's law, isn't it? See, God's law was never given to rescue us by. It can't make us right with God because we're actually unable to keep it. It can only tell us how we failed to live up to it, how we've all broken it. The law only accuses us. Remember when King David uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba 
and tried to cover it up by having her husband Uriah murdered. God saw it all, of course, and sent the prophet Nathan to expose and challenge David. And David was convicted and he prays that prayer in Psalm 51. Remember the psalm? I know my transgressions. I know how I've broken God's law. I know I've transgressed and broken your law, God. I've coveted my neighbor's wife, the 10th command. I've committed adultery, the 7th command. I've murdered her husband, the 6th command. I've broken those commandments. Have mercy on me, blot out my transgressions. See how God's law works there? It shows us how we've broken it. It reveals how ungodly and sinful we are, how we failed to love God with all our hearts, souls, minds and strength and failed to love our neighbours as ourselves. And so God's law condemns us. We owe a debt to God we can't possibly pay. But Paul, but says Paul, our debt has been cancelled. Listen to how J.B. Phillips paraphrases these verses. He says, Christ has forgiven you all your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which always hung over, your, over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his head on the cross. You and I are guilty, absolutely guilty. We've all broken God's law. But Christ has taken, the, has taken the damning evidence against us that should be nailed over our heads and nailed it over his own. The guilt is taken away, all the guilt. Whatever you've done or said or looked at, all God's laws you've broken in your mind and in your heart and in your actions, everything that weighs you down with guilt, Jesus has wiped it all away. The slate is clean been cancelled, forgiven, paid for. It's amazing, isn't it? Too amazing to drink in. Complete forgiveness of all our sins. No longer condemned, but fully accepted by God. After the Battle of Britain in 1940, when the Royal Air Force defended Britain against large-scale German bombing raids, Winston Churchill praised the bravery of the pilots and gunners who risked their lives defending Britain. This is what he said. Never before in the field of conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. And what Paul is saying here is this. Never before in the field of human conflict of sin and death have so many owed so much to this one man, Jesus. What a saviour we have. What a wonderful saviour we have. So we have intimate fellowship with Christ. We have forgiveness in Christ. And finally, we have freedom through Christ. Look at verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know, when people, many people think of Jesus' suffering, they mostly think of him as a victim. Brutally beaten by a Roman scourge, a, a whip, uh, mocked and jeered by soldiers and crowds, uh, nailed to a cross to dry, die a horrible, agonising death. It's a tragedy. It's, it's, a, it's a tragic defeat. But the thing is this, 
That's not how the Bible sees it at all. The cross is actually a triumph, according to the Bible. Christ is the victor. John Stott actually puts it this way. We are not to regard the cross as a defeat and the resurrection as a victory. Rather, the cross was the victory and the resurrection is the victory endorsed, proclaimed and demonstrated. Who has Jesus made a spectacle of? Who are the powers and authorities that Jesus defeated on the cross? It's the devil and all the powers of evil, isn't it? And what Paul is saying is this. You don't need to be afraid of evil and evil forces. Jesus defeated them. They've been disarmed. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Remember he said that in, in chapter 1? He stripped these principalities and powers, uh, powers of their power over us. Notice Jesus hasn't destroyed them. He's disarmed them. The devil is still like a roaring lion, tempting us in various ways, seeking to derail our faith. But we can resist him because of Christ's great victory on the cross. We're free to fight, free to resist, free to stand against him in Christ. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote that famous book, The Screwtape Letters. Some of you may have read that. That book is a, is a story of a senior devil screw tape writing to his nephew Wormwood on how to secure the damnation of a man he's tempting. In one of his letters, he says this, never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemies, that's God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure all the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. And friends, that's the battle we face, isn't it? The world presses us into its pleasure-seeking, consumerist mold and sin and selfishness far too often break out into our lives and temptations threaten to undo us and behind it all of course is satan and the forces of evil but in christ we have been set free from the control of those forces of evil free to resist new temptations free to resist the pressures to conform to the patterns of the world free to live for christ by his grace and power does that describe your life? Do you realise the glorious riches we have in Christ? Joined in close fellowship with him? Cleansed through the forgiveness that he brings? Freed to live our best lives because of his victory over the powers of darkness? Well, let me finish. For those of us who are Christians, let me ask, are you growing in Christ? How can I grow? Well, stay grounded in Christ. Find fullness in Christ. Realise what you have in Christ. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? He is our all and in all. There's nothing better. There's nothing more to be had. If you have him, you have everything. For as the Bible says, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Press into him. Grow up in him. And if you're here today 
and you're not sure about Christ, we're so glad you've come. But let me ask you, won't you consider putting your trust in him? There's no saviour like him. He can show you who God is. He can take away all your guilt. He can free you from the power of evil. Won't you put your trust in him? And if you'd like to know more, feel free to speak to Steve, myself, or one of the leaders here, or, or fill out that little slip on your bulletin and, and pop it in the everything box. We'd love to introduce you to him. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for everything we have in Christ. It blows us away, Lord, to think of all the fullness there is in Christ and then to realise that we have that receive that fullness in him help us to press into all that he is for us and lord for those here who are not yet sure about him lord help them to see who you really are and how your sacrifice makes all the difference to our lives now and eternally thank you lord for your kindness and love and we pray it all in the mighty and precious name of jesus amen